we put it in the old computer? No, I'm serious about this. Yeah, the computer don't lie. Now, let's see. What? It says... It says you're a dead fuck. What? A dead fuck? A lousy lay. You know? Dead oh, I see. Oh, don't hold it back for me, Doc. I can take it. Give it to me straight. I did not say it. The computer did. Yeah, well, there is no computer. Uh -huh. And there's no Betty, either. Oh, God, I'm horny. What's up, everybody? You are listening to another edition of It's Always Friday the 13th podcast. It's the show that applies to slasher movies the kind of reverent interest usually reserved for Picasso's and the French New Wave. Our favorite slasher movie series is reaching a pinnacle, at least of the Paramount era. Today we are talking about part four, the final chapter. Except as you all know, it really isn't the final chapter. I'm John Evans, and I'm joined by Vikram Wheat and Michael T. Kuchek. How are you guys this afternoon? Wonderful. Very good. Mike, what does the T stand for? I don't think I knew you, your, your middle name. Tiberius. I'm, um, Tiberius? I'm bum. <laughs> <laughs> I like both those answers. All right. Let, let's get into setting the stage for the story so that people <laughs> understand, you know, what the hell we're talking about as we yeah. discuss these characters. Mm -hmm. So, uh, long story short, the movie opens with uh, Jason, you know, being taken to the hospital. And meanwhile, we're meeting these, uh, or the morgue, because he's, he's clearly dead, along with everyone else there. But um, our characters that we're going to follow in this film are basically two groups the obligatory bunch of teenagers that are renting the house to party and then their neighbors, which is this nice little family, the Jarvis family, which is uh, a mother, a daughter and a son. The son is Corey Feldman. He's about 10 years old in the film. The daughter is maybe late teens, early twenties. And the mom is kind of a milfy Barbara Crampton looking chick. Mm -hmm. And uh, so basically they're all coexisting on the same area of the lake um you know nearby where the events of the previous films have taken place uh but not so near that anyone's that worried about it uh they're just kind of reading in the newspaper about uh the body <laughs> yeah. the murderer's body <laughs> disappearing like, huh how about that huh. good thing it's on the other side of the lake <laughs> yeah. Yeah. that's almost a quarter of a mile away don't worry we're fine <laughs> oh uh 85 percent chance of rain tonight okay yeah that's cool <laughs> Hmm, murderer's body face. missing. <laughs> yes. Good thing he's dead. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Although I, I, I love that uh, uh, the story gets out that his body, quote unquote, is stolen from the morgue. Yeah. And everyone just kind of buys that. Or it's like, yeah. uh, although it, it does feed into the idea that he is like dead, dead. And, he, and we're looking at zombie Jason. So, uh, Mike, what's your uh, thousand foot view of part four, the final chapter? Well, I, I will say that I still think that two is my personal favorite, and I think that the uh, the argument that is the best of the franchise is very strong. But four for me is a very close second. I think it's uh, as successful, if not slightly more so in some ways, not quite so much in other ways. But still, 
I would say this is the last Friday the 13th movie that I can unabashedly say this is a good movie. If you watch it, you're going to enjoy it. It's definitely like the end of the core four, as I like to call them. Yeah. Uh, you know, the films that were made within a, like a three to four year period. And, you know, a lot of the same principles, Sean S. Cunningham and, you know, Savini does two of them and Steve Miner directed two of them. But in any event, like there's a continuity to these films that will be lost as we move forward into the series. And everyone kind of feels like a one off as a different group of filmmakers, you know, try to pick up someone else's franchise and, you know, hopefully breathe new life into it. And obviously they have varying degrees of success. But Vic, what's your uh, view of this particular film now that you've revisited it for our show? Um, I actually, I mean, it's funny. I was thinking, Mike, I, I feel like I had some of the same experience that you had with the third one. Um, I mean, I, I came into it with very high expectations and the, uh, uh, I think my, my memories of the film are colored by the fact that this has the, the amped up sex and gore, uh, that, that we really sort of associate with the franchise. And I think that's why this is kind of the pinnacle and it, you know, I mean, this is when I think when we think of Friday the 13th, like this is the movie we think of the cliche that it has sort of become in, in, you know, culturally speaking. Um, and yet I was really disappointed with probably the first hour of it. Um, I think there, it, it does do some things very well. Um, you know, obviously besides the sex and gore, uh, but, uh, there, there was some stuff that I was, that I was actually really disappointed. And I think it's really in kind of the, the latter third that it comes to life and starts to succeed in ways that, that the other films haven't. Yeah. You know, uh, the thing that I liked best about this one was it seemed to kind of go back to the first two in terms of tone and approach, uh, even like the, the opening kind of sequence, you know, is quoting really heavily on one and two. And almost completely ignores three. I mean, this one, you know, cherry picks what it likes from three. You know, the mask, the machete, uh, the almost nonstop savagery of the murders. <laughs> it's like, but, but it leaves behind uh, the glossiness and stupidity. And uh, John, you had a really good word last week was condescension. Uh, it leaves that behind. And, and it takes the best of one and two. Uh, you know, mixes in a little bit of alloy from three and gives us this movie that's uh, com- focused almost completely on hits and murder, uh, almost to the detriment of narrative. I mean, it's a movie that makes very little sense. It's just a you know a sequence of of images of death, sex, and gore, which is you know. <laughs> that's what you bought your ticket for. So there yeah. you go. <laughs> yeah, yeah. The story has a hallucinatory kind of fragmented quality i mean as mike and i were watching it uh last night i kept kind of pointing out that you know we don't know what this character was doing before this scene or why they're coming in here what they're talking about you know like the just basic character logic of what these characters are up to is often like really weirdly vague and opaque and um, you know, it it could be due to just trimming in, in the editing room, you know, so much of the uh, unessential stuff about, you know, the mundane details of what the characters are doing. But it makes basic story logic kind of a, a struggle in the film so that I've 
to be frank with you, many times over the years watched this movie in in some state or another, whether I'm drunk or high or whatever. (laughs) And I've often thought like, well, you know, that's why I have having trouble following this or, you know, uh, why I don't remember the movie all that clearly afterwards. But, you know, I watched it sober this time uh, earlier in the week. And no, it's just a a weirdly um, haphazard film from a plot standpoint. But that doesn't diminish like the things that you guys are talking about, the fun parts of the experience or what we watch a, a Jason Voorhees film for. Um, that's there. You know, we get yeah. that. John, I think, I, I think you put your finger on something. Uh, this very much feels like a movie that had to lose about 15 minutes runtime in the edit room. And mm-hmm. so they just chopped out thing, you know, the connective tissue beats of, you know, why is this character going over here? Well, it doesn't matter. Let's just have her show up and get killed. (laughs) (laughs) Exactly. Yeah, and the teenagers in the audience didn't buy their movie ticket to, you know, why why does the mom go to the beach? No one gives a shit. You know, (laughs) they're only here to see how she gets killed by this rampaging maniac. He hasn't really changed that much or evolved from the last movie, which basically took place the day before this movie happens. I believe he's even wearing the same clothes. Uh, it looks like he's wearing the same green shirt and khaki work pants or whatever. A little more dirt on the old shoes in this one, but he's basically the same physically. Uh, did you guys notice anything different about the look of Jason in this movie versus part three? Not so much the look, although I was struck by uh, his, I mean, I guess I remember saying uh, uh, in part three, there's the, the scene when he gets he gets stabbed in the leg. And he groaned, and that was the first moment that I went, oh, like, oh, there's still a person in here. And then I watched him in this one get, you know, hit with the, the claw end of a hammer in, you know, his neck, and and not a sound. And I was like, all right, he's back to being a machine. Good to know. <laughs> he does make some sound at the end of this one. He There is some groaning during the struggle with the uh, the sister at the end of the film. At the, yeah, at the, at the very end. But that's, mm-hmm. uh, that's mostly my takeaway, is that Jason really has become just a machine like they don't even they don't even attempt to explain how it is that he's still alive after getting an axe in his head well not only that like he's declared dead i mean i'm assuming that these paramedics you know ran through the diagnostics and found that this guy is dead you know yeah (laughs) but when when he does get the the mask uh, cut off at the end um which seems to be like this increasingly like revealing moment that at the end you get one look at jason or whatever he almost looks like he's decomposing. <laughs> like yeah. he looks increasingly worse in every movie, you know, probably with good reason. But that was one, I mean, that was one thought that I had. In oh, I just realized something that's different is the long black fingernails that he has. Oh, in this that's movie. true. Yeah. 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 There, there are several beats in which uh, you, you get close ups of him, like grabbing somebody and they're clearly monster hands. Mm-hmm. Yeah, his skin tone is off. He's got the long black fingernails. He's got the disfigured face. You could definitely make the argument that this is actually the first zombie Jason, because I mean, he did climb out of a cold storage locker in the morgue and you know begin his killing spree after lying dead for fifteen to twenty minutes or however long it was, or even hours, really. Yeah, right. I, I mean, there's no like huge beat like we get later on in the series where it's like a bolt of lightning comes down and strikes his gravestone and blah, blah, blah. But it is like I, 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 they declare him dead. They stick him in cold storage and he gets right back up and starts killing again. So 
I, I they don't underline it. I, I, I guess you could say, well, you know, he's Jason Voorhees and he just kind of gets to do stuff like this because he's so crazy. You know, but, <laughs> <laughs> he's so crazy. He doesn't even care about death. You know, well, he's but, mastered uh, the yoga art of making your heartbeat like uh, slow to such a degree that it appears that you're dead. Yeah, uh, he's know, been doing I, a lot of meditation. Sitting out there in the woods on, on, on his filthy toilet, eating the beans and meditating. You know, uh, but, <laughs> Slowing you know, his heart down. Yeah, see, here's the thing that I noticed about the Jason in this movie is uh, it retains the hulking nature of three. But whereas in three, he was way more of like a Frankenstein where he uh, he moved very slowly for the most part. Uh, it's more about him standing there and staring at you um, and stuff like that. Uh, and he's like super, super strong. Like he manhandles like the farm boy without any problem whatsoever. In this one, though, we go back to a little bit more of the ferocity and nimbleness and quickness of two. Cause in two, I mean, as we discussed, he feels like he's, you know, basically a teenager, like somewhere between 15 and 18. So of course he's running around and climbing on chairs and doing all this kind of stuff. But now he's a big man and he's also doing that there. There's a beat really late in the final chase where the kid runs one way and the sister runs the other way. And uh, he kind of crouches like an ape and uh, very swiftly, like, looks between the two of them, deciding which one to murder first. Yeah. You know, I, I, I like there, there's a vitality and energy to this monster that makes him way more like a werewolf or something than Frankenstein. I mean, if we're going to draw comparisons to the classic universal monsters, he's more nimble and agile. And he, he runs again in this movie at the end, he chases her the way he, he chased someone in the second film. But the thing that I like the most about him in this one versus the other films is that he's upped the efficiency of his killing in this film. Like there's a, kinetic energy to what he's doing that is really impressive like people get hit really hard and fired through windows and you know there's like an emphaticness to his kills in this film the brutality is is sudden and decisive and it's like he's more like a whirlwind or a, a hurricane of murder and it just boom hits you and there's destruction and death and it's over really yeah. quick uh, John, do you, do you want to touch on the window breaking now or later? <laughs> <laughs> let's, let's do it. <laughs> now, uh, a, a little shout out to uh, my friend Brian Thomas, because uh, he, he pointed out that there's a lot of uh, people going through windows in this movie. So I was kind of watching out for it. And uh, yeah, there's a lot there. Uh, I, in fact, I counted five times in the course of this film. A, uh, a body goes through a window, including one in which Gordon, the Golden Retriever, inexplicably leaps through a second a second story window and then vanishes from the movie forever yeah like, I, really, know. I couldn't tell if, if gordon jumped or if maybe jason just threw him yeah it's hard well, to tell yeah because yeah. I, mean, I mean jason isn't particularly uh, uh uh aggressive to dogs as we saw in two yeah i mean again I and mean, here's another commonality with two is we have a dog character that factors into the story Yes. Gordon, the Gold, Gordon the Golden Retriever, but whereas, uh, you know, what, what was the name of the, the little dog with the blue ribbon on it in 2? Muffin. Muffin. Uh, in 2, we get Muffin, and Muffin actually, uh, you know, provides us with a little bit of a jump scare because Muffin shows up, and then Jason comes to the window behind the girl, blah, blah, blah. 
And this one, Gordon is just kind of a pain in the ass golden retriever as was kind of a common thing to see in horror movies in the 80s for some reason. Like Spielberg really liked to throw golden retrievers into movies for a while. <laughs> and so and, and it felt like that, that we're just going to have a kid, golden retriever. And like, I don't know, it's almost like a Suspiria moment. We're like, I don't know where the dog, we watch in slow motion as the dog crashes through a window. And then just vanishes. The kid doesn't even look for the dog anymore. There's some uh, sparing use of slow-mo in this film that is very effective. I'm thinking of one overhead shot where Jason is walking in this muddy expanse. uh, And and we have like a bird's eye view of him just pass through the frame. Uh, It's a really cool shot in slow motion with the rain, you know, in slow-mo. I do wait. I just want to back up because I had a, I had a thought and I needed to confirm something, but, Mm -hmm. uh, you know what? It, what I think the issue is mm. is because Alice's cat gets by just fine in part two after being hurled through the window by a grip. Maybe <laughs> Jason is just a cat person. In the case of the cat, the window was open, which is a big. Uh, I, I, I mean, that's a big axe factor. If we're gonna, but yeah, uh, I, I will. I mean, let's count them out. Um, there's <laughs> Gordon, obviously. I. Mm. Uh, Ah, uh, shit. Uh, no, oh, yeah, there, there's... Well, there's some... Muffin, there's the dog that he eats. No, 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 I, I'm talking about people going through windows and oh, park. Yes, no, and, no, uh, yes the, that's, that's much better. The, the first one that we get, I mean, speaking of editing room kookiness, is uh, we get the beat in which Crispin Glover gets a corkscrew through the hand by Jason Voorhees, and immediately after, we cut to a girl looking out the second story window and Jason reaches through and pulls her through the window and throws her to her death. Right. And she falls again and she falls on the station wagon in a really cool shot. And then we immediately cut back to him in the kitchen with Crispin Glover and the corkscrew. I mean, it feels like it doesn't really cut together that little sequence right there. No, they just kind of, they just kind of shoved that girl's death right in there because they had to go somewhere. <laughs> and then uh, you got Gordon, and then uh, later, when he's chasing his sister, he throws a dead body through one window, and then he crashes through another one. And then the fifth one is, uh, doesn't he, don't they, oh yeah, no, she throws herself through a window to escape yeah. him yes. at the very end of it. So yeah, five. One, two, three, four, five. Yeah, that's a ridiculous well, amount of bodies flying through windows in one movie. I, uh, yeah, yeah uh, uh, unless it was like an action or a martial arts movie, but in this one, it's like, yeah, I, I, it's almost like production got a, uh, got a sale on breakaway glass. And it's like, fuck, let's use it. <laughs> it's gonna expire man we can't yeah, i know it's gonna go bad <laughs> interestingly um uh, trish survives the fall where she hurls herself at the window right the same distance that <laughs> the uh the the twin that gets pulled out falls lands on a car roof and and is like instantly dead <laughs> um, that's right because well, it's the second story of the same house so you know i don't know well, I mean, maybe hitting the car is uh, more injurious to the human body than hitting that ultra-soft, spongy ground that uh, Trish lands on. Yeah, she, it, it's got movies, a lot of bounce to it. If movies have taught me anything, it's that landing on the roof of a car cushions the blow. In, in this case, uh, the difference is uh, one character likes sex and the other one is virginal. That's true. Although, although she's really hot for the dude who's living in, in the tent in the woods. Mm-hmm. But due to the fact that she isn't able to consummate it, she lands in, in squishy, bouncy mud instead of a deadly, deadly station wagon. Let's kind of take it more or less chronologically now. Wait, um, I, I, I do just want to point out as uh, in terms of the setup, one of the things that I, I did find interesting about this and where I think it's, it's uh, uh, maybe a little better than its, than its predecessors 
is that this has a legitimate A story, B story, and even a C story. Mm-hmm. Um, That's true. Which is not some, you know, I mean, we've always only ever had one group of teenagers that we basically follow, uh, you know, to their doom. Um, it was, you know, we haven't had, we didn't cross cutting before. So it was that, that was something in terms of the setup. I went, Oh, like this is, this adds sort of a, a a level of narrative complexity, uh, that, that hasn't been there before. I don't think they take full advantage of it, but you know, it's, it, it is a step up, I think. Yeah, that's a good point. More characters. Uh, you know, we are sort of juggling between the, uh, Teddy and Jimbo storyline. <laughs> <laughs> now those are two of the teenagers, and uh, I am very fond of of their subplot and their dynamic. It's very entertaining. Basically, Crispin Glover is Jimbo, this sort of hapless teen who is constantly second guessing his romantic failures and his only friend. Uh, the odious Teddy is constantly mocking him rather than offering any kind of real support or advice. And if he gives advice, it's it's insulting and worthless. So their their conversations are a highlight of the film for me. Yeah, uh, I, I do like uh, uh, the scene in which uh, Teddy checks his invisible computer yes. for feedback. You know, yes. <laughs> And it goes, uh, uh, the computer says, you're a dead fuck, Jimbo. And, uh, and, 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 and that, that is what counts for uh, Jimbo's character arc, is uh, yes. he worries that he is a dead fuck right up until he has sex with one of the twins. And uh, in, in, in a squirm-inducing monologue, asks her how he was, and she says he was just fine, and now he's happy. No, so she actually, says you were amazing or right. spectacular. That's or, right. Uh, yeah, yeah. <laughs> and, and he is overjoyed. So I literally, uh, we give Jimbo the opportunity to die with a smile on his face. His character comes full arc. Yep. He realizes that he's a manly man. He, he's achieved manhood in a certain way, uh, only to have the uh, the flower of his uh, virility cut short by a corkscrew through the hand. But <laughs> you know, only if he if only he had stuck with beer. He might have survived this whole. Experience. You never know. <laughs> if he hadn't needed the celebratory wine, if he had just rolled over and had sex with her again, I mean, he was going to die anyway. But at least he could have gotten another, you know, another roll of hay in there. Uh, it's also wine. He's going to go get in some wine. Where's the fancy corkscrew? Is what he says to uh, Teddy. Right. Um, yeah. You know, fancy. The, uh, don't give me the, you know, the, the the piece of shit corkscrew you got at the at the liquor store. Like I want the fancy one from the restaurant. <laughs> Yeah, he, he's opening wine for a lady. He needs yeah. to. He needs to. Yeah, don't a lady her. that he has just been so chivalrous as to bring her panties to his friend as a yeah. as a trophy. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> uh, his special lady friend. He's getting wine for the special lady friend. So yeah, and, and uh, apparently uh, Jason finds the non fancy corkscrew because that's what he uses to crucify him to the back door. Yeah, there's no, there's two corkscrews to hang him yeah. up. Yeah. One is the fancy corkscrew, and the other is the non-fancy corkscrew. Oh, there you go. That, yeah. That's why we have to delineate these two things. I did. I did find. I'd be curious what you guys think of this. Uh, pretty much every time Teddy was talking, I found myself thinking of Mike Damone from from Fast Times at Ridgemont High. Oh, um, with Teddy, yeah, yeah. I like saw that, or I also saw like sort of a poor man's Justin Long. Yes. Yeah, uh, yeah so, I mean, Teddy had a weird simian aspect to him that, that reminds me of, of like a kind of semi-formed seventh graders in a way. 
where like they're they're kind of mm-hmm. somewhere between you know human you know they're they're human aspects and and they're still kind of evolving in a sense. There, I, I, I mean, there's not only is he odious, but he just looks like a weird mutant. Yeah, character. yeah, he has that awkward man-child look. In three, it was Shelley that I was counting the seconds for this character to die, and this one is Teddy. I'm just like Jason Voorhees, where art thou? Oh, his <laughs> his idea of smooth seduction lines are just so painful where he'll hold up like the teddy bear and kind of wave it in the girl's face and say, do you want to kiss the teddy bear? You just want to punch him in the nose. Oh yeah. 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 Especially because I, I, he's, he's bagging on Jimbo for, for being a quote unquote dead fuck. But I mean, his own game is so piteous. That is, yeah. yeah, I, 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 uh, Teddy is very much a dude who's, uh, he's beaten up on his friend's, uh, self-esteem for, I, I, and to lift his, his own, wretched existence up just a little bit exactly and then yeah. he he gives up so completely that he just watches these old porno movies from like the early 20th century on this uh 16 millimeter projector and laughs uproariously to himself uh like like a savage you know and drinks can after can of course yeah and uh the one thing i'll say is that he's a good sport about it when Jimbo comes to celebrate his triumph. Um, You know, Teddy doesn't turn on him or, you know, reduce the, the value of the achievement. Like, so in a way, even he has somewhat of a redemptive moment in that he can kind of be a good friend to, to Jimbo at the end before he, uh, he meets his own grisly fate. Yeah. I, I, uh, John, you actually bring us to uh, the slightly old timey choices uh, that, that we, we see in act two, Uh, you know, the the kids get together in that living room to kind of party, you know, just a general party. I like to party. So, uh, and one of them turns on uh, some terrible pop music uh, to which Crispin Glover dances uh, to, to the rhythm of Back in Black, apparently. Uh, and he, he dances around. Wait, tell the and, story so that people understand what you're talking oh, about. Oh, yeah. I, I saw an interview in which uh, I, I guess during that scene they were playing back, ACDC's Back in Black. And that's and, and if you watch Crispin Glover's rhythm, like he's dancing in rhythm to that song. you know. Uh, but they, they couldn't get the rights or something like that, so they just replaced it with some you know terrible pop song. And uh, that, that's why it's, it's like that much more spastic because that's definitely nothing. <laughs> he, he's dancing to a song that is not actually playing on the soundtrack. Um, brilliantly yeah. spastic though yeah. that is oh, the yeah. best bad dancing that I've ever seen I mean it, it, you kind of buy it you can believe that somebody would be doing it but it, it's like Elaine from Seinfeld could take yeah. lessons from this bad dancing right but I, I, I in, in all ways Jimbo is a dude who is dancing to music that's only playing in his own head and <laughs> I, I, I and so I, I mean that sequence actually kind of fits I mean it's not only funny but it, it still fits the character yeah, he's just kind of a weird, spazzy guy. But uh, yeah, I am <laughs> this surprise to no one. But uh, I, well, that's yeah. a great casting choice then to get Crispin Glover for this role because oh, yeah. he owns it. Well, you know, I, I noticed that it's kind of like uh, Jason Alexander in The Burning, in which uh, you you have kind of this collection of generic uh, teen characters, but uh, there, there is you know sometimes when you see uh, someone who would go on to be famous and you know playing a younger role when they're like eighteen, nineteen. Like, they do stand out. You, you do go, that's by far the most interesting person in this cast. You know? Yeah, just uh, like uh, Michael Richards in Prom Night. No, I'm just right? 
<laughs> I'm just looking for more Seinfeld connections. At this right, point. right, 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 right. But yeah, I, 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 continuing the thought though is uh, Jimbo dances to the terrible pop song, and uh, and everyone kind of curdles at it. And uh, what happens is they stop it and put on this uh, really old time. It sounds like like jazz from the 20s. I want to say, and suddenly uh, that fills the room with a romantic air. And the girls start pairing off with their bows. You know, uh, it, it seems like a clear choice on the movie's part that, you know, this terrible 80s music is terrible. You know, if the characters go back to old-timey stuff, then they will be happier. And that's when, uh, after, you know, everyone starts pairing off, uh, Teddy finds the, the reel and then starts rolling uh, through this uh, pornography that seems like from the Nickelodeon days. We're not talking about you can't do that on television. It's an old stag film is what Wikipedia calls it, by the way, which does kind of make sense. All right. Well, let's double back. Um, Vic, what are your thoughts about the opening sequences, like uh, either the super montage or we could gloss over that and jump right into the uh, the hospital stuff? What did you make of those scenes? We go back to this idea of, of crafting characters that you kind of can't wait to see die. Um, the moment that Axel puts his sandwich on Jason's body. I was like, well, that's that. <laughs> <laughs> yep. Oh, he is, oh. Axel is, again, speaking of odious characters, yeah. um, such a scumbag. Exactly. Um, which makes it, by the way, I mean, again, this, is, this was one of the things that I found, again, sort of the, the weaker stuff in terms of the, the writing and everything else in the, in, the, certainly in the first hour of the film. This nurse, okay, she wants to come in and watch the news. Okay. Um, you know, he's a jerk and scares her and yada, yada. She turns around and starts like making out with him and taking off her clothes <laughs> after really sort of plainly, uh, you know, resisting his, his charms. And I use that, that phrase loosely. Um, you know, I didn't believe, I didn't believe that for a second. They were like, look, like, let's, let's just, let's get some, some partial nudity in here as soon as possible. But my, my read on that was that they already have a sexual relationship yeah. And everything that precedes that is is just kind of their 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 edgy banter with each other. Yeah, I can certainly see that. That wasn't how I interpreted it. I saw it as it it seemed like he was genuinely sort of. Anyways, I took it at face value. I guess. Yeah, they uh-huh. they've been hooking up for a while. Is yeah. my my read on it. Although uh-huh. I, I you never know. I, I if there's one motif I find in uh, watching these movies and discussing them, it's I I frequently come choices in which it's like it's either shitty screenwriting or yes. else or, or else we can make I, some kind of excuse for it yeah exactly <laughs> there's a lot of that in these movies. there's uh, some weird dialogue in this part you know like uh some of their banter she, she has some line i wish i'd made a note of it but it's a real doozy it's like this bizarre quirky phrased comment that she makes yeah she and, called him something like the sultan of self-abuse or something like yeah, that. yeah yeah and it took me a minute to even figure out what she meant like that i'm like oh she's referring to the fact that he sits around and jerks off to these these 80s workout videos yeah <laughs> and the workout videos should be mentioned because they don't look like anything you could see you know some woman in lycra watching this and you know busting moves along with these women like it's so sexual uh it, it doesn't bear any resemblance to a jane fonda tape or something you know no, from that era a, remember this was a real thing in the 80s 
Like there was, mm-hmm. there was like workout stuff that was clearly, you know, just masturbatory material and probably got better ratings than, uh, you know, Jane, Jane Fonda or Suzanne Summers did. Right. Um, I, I, we are looking at, you know, th- this is probably like one, one of the first choices in which it's clear that this movie is going to be, it's going to be about sex and violence, whether it makes sense or not. Yeah. I, the, the guy's dead. Doesn't matter. He's going to get up and start killing us. Oh, he's yeah. uh, watching exercise videos. Do they actually look like real exercise videos? It doesn't matter. But that said, undulating I mean, bottoms. I find the 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 scenes fairly effective. I mean, especially yeah. her when she's sort of sort of taking stock in the stock room or whatever. Um, you know, I found that well shot and and creepy. And you know, I mean, you don't get up to this point. We haven't had a lot of like fluorescent lighting. You know what I mean, and and they use that to effect to get sort of the 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 most out of the opening scene. Um, yeah. That's not I. It's not quite as effective, I think, as the uh, uh, the the shopkeepers in in part three. The the visual aspect that I found most impressive early on was actually the very beginning of the film, where you have that huge crane out. Uh, again, sort of a bird's eye view, but of the entire property that we saw in the last film. And you've mm-hmm. got all of these emergency vehicles and, you know, police and paramedics and forensics. They're all scurrying around. And you just get this sense of scale and scope that this is a bigger movie. And, you know, now we're treating this in a really realistic way. And I like that to set the tone and the scale of the film at the at the start. And they don't really keep that up. Like, I don't think that the rest of the film is particularly, there's nothing I would describe as bravura or anything, Mm -hmm. but I did like the um, panoramic open of the film. Um, And also the weird choice that they hang on the shot after all the, 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 police vehicles and the ambulances and even the helicopter leave the scene it just hangs for like 10 seconds on the dark barn and the woods and everything with nothing happening and it's just quiet again and then they cut to the hospital like it just there's something weird and moody about that and ominous that i i like that choice you wouldn't normally let a moment a shot hang like that, I, that that's really good stuff and i also like that i mean that that sequence kind of makes an extremely early announcement that uh, we intend to actually direct this one. I mean, after three, which is really staid and dull, you know, to open with this one and to, you know, with that shot, it's like, oh, good. Okay. We're, we're, we're going back to the first two in more ways than one. Another great shot is when we see in a flash of lightning the silhouette of Jason impaling the girl on the bike or however yeah. he kills her. Yeah. That is awesome. Yeah, yeah, I, 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 yeah. No one's going to give this an Academy Award, but at the same time, it's a big step back up in terms of camera movements and choices. Moving on to the next point in the narrative, Jason has dispatched those two uh, hospital workers. Now we're meeting this this family. Tommy Jarvis, played by Corey Feldman. He's got his masks. He's got his Zaxxon video game. Loving mom and and sister just like to give him sandwich hugs in the kitchen all the time. (laughs) (laughs) Come on, it's time for you to be the meat and the love sandwich again. Oh, geez. Okay, I'd rather play with my monster masks. Shut up and get the sandwich. (laughs) Have some lemonade. 
when it comes to character building, this is a movie that that's really quick to reach for, like almost Spielbergian shorthands, where we open with this very sunny kitchen. We have a giant pitcher full of lemonade that immediately, you know, makes you think of family and suburbs and uh, picnics. Uh, we have Gordon, the cute uh, uh, dog. Retriever. And, and, yeah, and Corey Feldman also plays this this character that showed up uh, several times in horror movies of the period is the the kid who's interested in monsters and effects and sci-fi. And interestingly enough, I mean, that's why I despised Shelley so much in 3, was because it felt way too, he was way too old for this shit. You know, uh, mm -hmm. like he, he was like a, a, a rusted development, you know, psychologically and emotionally, you know, whereas it makes perfect sense for a 10-year-old kid to act like this, where like, uh, you know, the guy who's hunting Jason, you know, comes to visit him in his room, and, you know, he's excitedly showing him, like, all those cool monster masks and everything else. It's like, you know, yeah, as a kid, we get that. Uh, sure. Also, uh, uh, Salem's Lot for another of those kids. That's right. That's right. So, Vic, you're kind of our go-to guy for uh, psychology here. Um, what do you think about his psychological state at the outset of the movie and then at the end of the movie when he's a child of divorce? The mom and the dad might get back together, and the family certainly wants to see that happen. But maybe there's been a little bit of trauma there. But do you think that he is, like, at the start, a really well-adjusted, happy kid? Or do you think the horror movie masks and all that are an indication of him dealing with some darker issues? See, that's, to me, Tommy is, I mean, again, another one of these sort of wasted opportunities. I mean, it's funny, Mike, because I had much the same way you reacted to, to Shelley in the fact that he felt like this, um, you know, this reflection of the sort of proposed audience for this, for the movie. Yeah. Um, I, that was kind of how I felt about Tommy was like, they were like, all right, like, all right. So maybe you're not like a, like a nerdy, obnoxious teenager. You're just a 10 year old. Um, <laughs> so I, I felt a little, you know, I mean, I guess I still felt a little bit of the condescension in that, on top of which, I mean, you're going to, so psychologically, you would say, all right, after the, the divorce, the kid probably, you know, you retreat into something. You're running away from all this, this shit that's happening in your family. You're going to find a refuge in something. And for him, it was making these masks, right? Um, but there's such an obvious and sort of interesting correlation between, you know, this kid with the, you know, with family issues. He's into these masks. Like there's, they, they don't explore much. I mean, except yes, the, I mean, you know, you, you would say that this is, this is what gives him the insight to know how to, how to distract Jason. And I'm thinking of the, the Rob Zombie Halloween when, you know, you really get into the idea of the mask and what does the mask mean? And, and, um, you know, drawing these parallels between, you know, you there's a lot more they could have done with it, and they didn't do very much. One common trope that you find in characters like this when they show up in horror movies is the idea that, you know, someone who's uh, who's into monster stuff in horror movies is going to be more mentally prepared. So when horror shit goes down within mm -hmm. their world, they're not going, oh, it's just a weird noise. Oh, it's just the rain. They're immediately thinking, oh, no, I should. It might, it might be a ghost or a vampire yeah. or a killer. And so they're they're a little bit more mentally they're a little bit ahead, uh, ahead of the curve. Again, I think if you were if you were going to draw if you were going to draw the line for for how this informs his character and where it pays off, what you would say is that at the climax, 
Tommy understands more than anyone why Jason wears the mask. Um, interesting. You know, I, I you know his uh his makeup at the end makes him look really weird and creepy. I mean, he looks like a little gremlin. Uh, it's, you it's know, really unsettling. That's one yeah. of the images that really stuck with me from watching this as a again as a as a kid far too young to be watching this. Yeah. That's right. You mentioned that in one of our earlier shows Vic, yeah. that you found that that makeup was one of the more memorable and scary things about the whole movie for you as a kid. Yeah. Yeah. yeah I, I, when he comes creeping down the stairs and he's kind of hunched over and he's trying to, he's, he's kind of playing the part of undead child Jason. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah. I, I, I mean, you, you could laugh at it and say that he's like a kid playing Uncle Fester for Halloween, but I actually looked at him. I was like, that is a creepy fucking kid. I'm actually a little bit more scared of him than Jason. Yeah. <laughs> Well, we keep talking about this character in passing that we need to formally introduce to the audience here. And it's this Rob guy who shows up and Trish kind of has a crush on him from the start. And he says, wait for it, boys. He's here hunting bear. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) That's another callback to the first two is we we get references to that. There's bears in these woods. You know, I, I would love to finally get a Friday the 13th movie in which we see one of these goddamn bears. <laughs> I feel like this is like we're in David Lynch territory or something where we're we're trying to figure out the, the significance of the bears, you know, in this series. <laughs> yeah, I, just, I feel like this, this series has been building up to Jason versus a bear. Yeah, well, yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> that, would, that would totally top the, the zombie versus shark. Absolutely. <laughs> we see a bear snuffling around. Unfortunately, Bart the bear is no longer with us, but we see a bear snuffling around. He looks up, he grimaces. There's uh, Jason's shoes. You know, uh, the machete comes out. And uh, I, I, of course, we're going to know who wins. But, but uh, yeah, but, you know, uh, listen, uh, uh, Platinum Dunes, if you're listening, <laughs> Jason versus a bear, you've got the money. Well, that was the point that I wanted to make with Rob is that he's a character that actually more or less appears in the 2009 Platinum Dunes remake. There's a very similar character. And the idea with this character is that Sandra, who was the uh, proto-nymph of the second movie that, uh, you know, I thought both looked like a 12-year-old girl and had giant boobs. So it was kind of weird and off-putting. This is his uh, sister. Uh, who died in the second movie. And so now Rob is back to hunt down Jason and he's got all these clippings and stuff, which tell the story of the crimes. And that's actually what Tommy uses uh, at the end. He goes through the clippings and that's the direct catalyst for him to uh, make himself look like the artist's rendering of uh, mongoloid Lake Jason as a kid. Yeah, uh, th- this character does a couple of interesting things. I, I mean, he, he shows up, and I, I think he's meant to be on some level like a little bit of a red herring, uh, yeah. even though we know for a fact that it's Jason because he we watch him get out of the morgue. But, you know, he shows up, and, you know, the car is inexplicably broken down in the middle of nowhere, and he yanks out a knife. And I, I, I am far from a m- mechanical dude, but he somehow uses the blade of the knife to get the car started. Uh, the Despite Corey Feldman's best efforts, because he's kind of a techie kid. It's interesting yes. that his sister will immediately tell him to fix technological things. Oh, the car is broken. Fix the car. Oh, the lights have gone out. Hey, go go fix the lights. You know, I, I mean, he, he's he's a handy kid, and for that reason, like he immediately gloms onto this character 
in a really friendly way. And you think that, like, on the one hand, it's like uh, he's friendly because the guy can fix engines and he likes guys who can fix engines. But there is also this kind of, you know, he's hungry for, a, uh, you know, a male role model in his life. You know, dad is not around, yes. you know, and, and this dude shows up and he's kind of cool and his sister has this big crush on him and he's got guns and he's, you know, kind of this brooding, intense dude. You know, it's like uh, Emily goes, let's go hang out in my room with my monster mask, you know. Yeah, I like that moment when they just bring him home and the mom's like, uh, hello. And... <laughs> like, hello, heavily armed strangers who, <laughs> who, who my children found in the, on the road. On the side of the road. <laughs> yeah, and, uh, and she makes him go live in a tent, uh, which I'm sure was the last thing this dude wanted to do in, you know, the Crystal Lake woods uh, <laughs> well, uh, let's finish this character off because yeah. one of the interesting things about him is that like, we, we set him up as potentially a key ally or heroic figure, but man, this dude goes out with a whimper. What's interesting to me about him is it's the first time in the movies that we have somebody who knows Jason is there yes, and it's, and it's kind of ready for it. You do. I mean, I agree with you 100%, John. They, they set this up like this is going to be this epic show. Like, finally, Jason's not going to be able to sneak up on somebody in the dark. I mean, it's not somebody wandering through the woods going, you know, Tina, hello? <laughs> right. You know, like, here's this guy who's kind of ready for it. And, yeah, we get it gets virtually no payoff. Yeah. Um, except yeah. I mean, the only payoff of it is to be like, holy crap, I didn't expect that. And... You know, that is how hopeless or dark the moment yeah. gets for Corey Feldman and, and his sister in that, like, their only hope is snuffed out so easily. Yeah, yeah. Th- th- this guy is kind of like the colonial Marines and aliens. Yeah. Where it's, like, <laughs> where it's like, even when you send in, like, a heavily armed dude who's fully aware that the monsters are there and he's totally prepared for it, the monsters just eat him alive just as easily as anybody else. And you realize that's like... No, you can't just machine gun your problems away. Uh, yeah, it, it is interesting though. Uh, you know, this film gives if it shares one thing with three, it's the fact that Jason is given almost no psychology whatsoever. And one of the only actual character beats that we give to Jason is when he finds this dude's little camp in the woods, and instead of instantly murdering him, just fucks up his guns right. and, then, and then sneaks away. What is up with that? Well, yeah, like he clearly goes into the tent with the guy only about 10 feet away and basically watching and vandalizes his shit and then leaves. <laughs> like, <laughs> sprays gang signs on the tent. Right. <laughs> well, I mean, I came away from that with the impression that Jason kind of knew. You know what I mean? That this guy was putting himself out there as bait. It's like the predator, like, uh, you know, taking, you know, all right, look, we're going to do this. We're going to do this. We're going to do it fair. Like no guns. I'm going to, I'm going to, I'm going to even, you know, we're going to, I'm going to take away your advantages a little bit. Considering how many times Jason has died by this point, like, is he that worried about taking a bullet from a hunting rifle? Right. Well, I, I, you know, the interesting thing is, uh, as we established in our last uh, episode of this podcast, uh, if you fall unconscious, Jason will leave you alone. Uh, again, in a yep. bear-like manner, he'll kind of snuff around at you, but he won't kill you if you're asleep or unconscious or anything like that. And uh, in this case, we have the exact opposite, in which a dude shows up looking for a one-on-one fight where he's got shotguns and a machete and knives and everything else, 
And uh, Jason's response is to, again, not kill him at first, but to toy with him. Uh, and I, I don't think Not that's... only that, he's in the basement at the end when the guy does die, and he lets him go all the way back up the stairs, and if the step hadn't broken, right. and then the guy inexplicably went back down into the basement once he got his foot free. Right. <laughs> yeah. There's a lot of inexplicable trips to the basement, I found. Yeah, well, yes. I, I, you know, I understand that. that J- I, I think it's fair to say that uh, as a person, Jason Voorhees is uh, a little not well-established with his fellow humanity. And, uh, you know, he, he's not a kid who's gone to a lot of school or hung out with other children or adults, you know, outside of his crazy mom. And so uh, I almost have to wonder if this is his version of glomming onto this character where I mean, he's going to play with him. You know, mm-hmm. this is he, he's uh, you know, they're going to play tag for a little while. This is as close as Jason gets to playing a game with a friend. I like that. Yeah. Read on well, it. And, yeah. and like I said, I mean, I just think, too, like Rob, Rob is setting a trap for Jason. Um, and I think that Jason sniffs it out very, right. very quickly and very easily. Yeah, uh, yeah, he he's gonna zig when you know Rob wants him to zag. Yeah, yeah, because Jason is is on his home territory. It's just like I, I Rob is showing up to hunt. Yeah, I, I, I he the hunter instantly becomes the hunted. You know, I, it's like yeah, he's, yeah. he's 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 on Jason's home territory. Jason knows every stick of these woods. He's grown up here. He's a supernatural creature that's bound to the evil magic of Crystal Lake. It's like you're not gonna beat Jason Voorhees on his home territory, but I mean Jason might. You know, have some fun with you. So what do we think about the other female character of note uh, in this film? Uh, Sarah, who is the virginal girl who has a crush in this film. And she gives her virginity to this guy. And he sings in the shower. And they uh, they run off and have a wonderful life together. Oh, wait, no. That's not what happens. <laughs> we, we cut to them cutting cake. Oh, no. That's not true. That's not what happens. You realize he's just hallucinating while Jason crushes his skull against the uh, bathroom wall. I like Um, that kill. That was a good kill. Yeah, uh, that that, that was uh, – Jason does uh, some posing in this movie too. Yes. Not not posing like Hulk Hogan where he's flexing his biceps. (laughs) (laughs) He's not not voguing on the dance floor. (laughs) No, he doesn't strike a pose. Uh, But what he does do is he arranges bodies in some specific ways. He kills the guy in the shower, and he's already sort of on display with his face, you know, half buried in the jagged, broken door of the shower. But then Jason still feels the need to pin him against the wall five feet away with a a knife or something through his his neck, uh, because that's better. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I I, 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 who's to tell what's going through the mind of Jason Voorhees? Yeah, and then when he hangs up poor Jimbo by the the two corkscrews, uh, when Jason decides it's, it's time for him to leave, he decides to go out that way, and he just like dismissively throws his own handiwork down on the ground and tears the dude's poor hands off. Yeah, uh, he, he goes to all the trouble of hanging yeah. up by, by the fancy and the non-fancy corkscrews. He crucifies this guy, but then when he needs to go through that door, he pushes poor Crispin Glover aside like he's a bead curtain. Yeah, exactly. He he just totally undermines whatever symbolic value of of that. Well, seats, I mean, I think all of what all of that points to, and again, I know we we talked about this jokingly in terms of people blacking out to get away from him, but that there is this sense in which Jason enjoys the fear. Yeah, 
You know what I mean? And so it's not uh, for him. It's for them. And she's already seen that body. Once Trish has seen it at the end, it served its purpose. And now it is just a beat curtain. So what do you guys think about this Sarah character? I mean, any, any thoughts on her? I hated it. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, uh, I mean, this is, again, this is one of those things that I found really disappointing. And what I kept thinking of, I mean, because she's she's beautiful. Like, she's very well cast in this part. What I kept thinking of was uh, the relationship between Mark and what was the girl's name? The guy in the wheelchair, Mark, and the girl in uh, part right. two. Yeah. I'll and how well developed that was and how sort of, you know, how we were kind of rooting for them as a relationship and, and, and you know. I think they, it was Vicky. Doug, I think, is the guy that she has a crush on. Yes. Like, I I have no idea what she sees in this guy that, that she's like, this is the guy. You know, when they get out of the shower after they've made love and she's like, I think I'm in love. And I was like, why? Like, this guy just has a bad haircut. <laughs> like, that's that's what I mean is there's, there's there were there were places where you could have done something interesting to invest in the character's um in the you know in the first and second act and they truly did there's just nothing i don't think paul has any dialogue uh and until he decides not to cheat on his girlfriend basically in front of her right right uh, right but i i think that that relationship is way more about her uh because there there's that beat in which she goes up to the bedroom and she's basically getting ready to lose her virginity and there's something like really kind of endearing and 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 adorable about her in that scene where she's like kind of nervous and excited and you know just the entire thing and I, I I whether the dude's like kind of a lump or not I mean you know 20 years from now she's gonna look back and go oh I can't believe I lost my virginity to this dude but you know I I was 17 at the time what do you want you know mm. so I mean, that's kind of the prism that I was seeing it through but you know she seems like another bait and switch. Uh, a la, you know, Friday the 13th, the first one. This is a movie that gives us two really viable choices as our final girl protagonist. Yeah. One of the common tropes of, uh, you know, slasher films is if you have sex, you die. Mm-hmm. Uh, and very often, like many of the common tropes, there, I mean, when you actually sit down and watch the movies, it's proven to not really be all that true. And in this movie... Kind of like the black guy dying first in every single yeah, movie. Yeah, it's like, mm-hmm. you know, point that movie out to me, please. Anyone, you know, and Scream 2 doesn't count. In this one, it actually does pay off, because we have two girls who are equally built up to be our final girl protagonist. One of them has sex, she dies five minutes later. Right. Yeah. She yeah. gets a, an axe thrown through the door, and then... Through, thrown into her all in one toss. Isn't yeah, and, basically yeah, it, yeah. And what's interesting though is it really feels like uh, Corey Feldman's sister was. I mean, she was all over that Rob character. Mm-hmm. You know, just really, really into him. And I think that you know, it's purely by um, an accident of timing, fate, and opportunity that you know, an accident. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, John, John, that that just cost us five listeners. Come on. <laughs> uh, now, now we're negative. So what the fuck, man? Yeah. <laughs> it will be great if uh, Jason then steps through that broken door and goes, "Did you have an accident?" And it was like, "Where were you going with that?" Oh, just the idea that it's purely by an accident of fate that um, 
uh, Corey Feldman's sister turns out to be our final girl rather than the other one. Yeah, yeah. I mean, if you want to say that by protecting her virginity, that is the recipe for success. She gets yeah. lucky by not getting lucky. Yeah, she she wasn't protecting her virginity at all. She really wanted to fuck Rob. Yeah, she keeps going back to that tent, man. Like, <laughs> yeah, it's really because she's got mom and her little brother and Gordon, the stupid dog, hanging around. That you know, she isn't given the opportunity to ride this dude. But it's like, and. You know, due to that, I mean, if we're going to obey the rules, you know, the quote unquote rules of this genre, then uh, she saves her own life purely yeah. by luck. <laughs> I'm, I'm kind of on uh, Vic's side with the the characters and a lot of the same elements of the film that I'm not a huge fan of. And to me, I'm disappointed by the female characters in this movie. Like, I find them much weaker and less interesting than, you know, obviously the incomparable Amy Steele. Ginny right. from the second movie. Yeah. But I mean, you could just say even the girl in the first movie, Alice, Alice. Thank you. Alice in the first movie is more, you know, quirky and resourceful and in some way charismatic to me than either Trish or, or Sarah. So I, I mark off points um, for that with this movie. And overall, for me, this movie is is very much the formula being, you know, I, I, you could say that the formula was established in three. So now we're just sort of perfecting the formula. And I will give it props for, for some aspects of that. Like I said, the lethality of Jason is great. And I do think that some of the humor in the film works very well without being as campy as the third film. And yeah. I do like the tone being more serious and naturalistic uh, in this one, uh, more like the first two films, but overall I, I was a little disappointed by it as well. Uh, it, other than the fact that the, the sex and the gore are back with a vengeance, thanks to Tom Savini and some lovely young actresses. I think the girl, uh, who goes out on the raft, uh, is a real cutie, um, forgetting her name, but no, you know what? Hang on. I had to look her up because I was like, like I saw her and instantly was like, I feel like I have a crush on this girl. Yeah. And I finally realized, you know who she is, is she's one of the girls at the end of weird science. Oh, wow. The kids wind up with. Yeah. Huh. Yeah. Her name's Sam in this. Yeah. Um, they recycle names in this film. We have a Paul and a Terry, and we had yeah, a Paul right. and a Terry in the second movie. Let's very mm-hmm. briefly touch on the twins. One of the Terry's is, is, is the twin. And the other, the other twin is uh, Tina. So what did you think of the twins, Mike? Well, it, it's interesting that uh, they are, they just kind of show up. They just kind of, the characters just kind of run into them. They're just kind of bicycling together on a forest path. And, uh, you know, it, it, it actually accentuates the idea that this area is a vacation spot. We have rental houses. We run into, you know, cute twins on bicycles. They're just kind of hanging around in the woods. And uh, one of them is uh, is a little evil. Uh, during yeah. that sequence, when all the characters are just kind of partying in the living room, uh, she plays one guy against the other. She's toying with their emotions, you know. Uh, she's yeah, like, she's stealing the guy out from under poor Sam. Yeah, I mean, she. Uh, it, it seems her mo is to cause as much drama as possible for her own amusement. Absolutely. Absolutely. Whereas, whereas the and, other one just kind of hangs around and rolls her eyes at her sister. Yeah. And I mean, and she's kind of slutty and she likes one guy and then she settles in and is perfectly happy with Jimbo. 
these twins do land like an atom bomb for the rest of the female characters. Like, like suddenly, yeah. they, you know, I mean, there, there's a lot. I mean, there, there's a source of sexual competition that they weren't going into this weekend expecting, and uh, it, it's it's almost like the twins uh, pick up on that and go, "Yeah, let's fuck with these random chicks just because it's fun." And, and, and who knew that you could be a source of sexual competition wearing? baggy pastel <laughs> outfits <laughs> it, it seems like they shopped at like a place that my mom would have picked up some clothes in 1982 yeah, yeah. not yeah. a sexy look by any means all right so vic what are your thoughts about the ending of the film how tommy wins how jason meets his end in this one it is the moment of psychological complexity in the really in the the film again with the the exception i suppose of of whatever the the interaction is between jason and rob earlier and that gives it i mean if you're looking for something to i mean if you're looking for something to recommend this film beyond the excessive uh uh sex and and gore not that it needs more necessarily but uh uh this is it and like i said it's you can even though it's not explored as much as it as it could have been, you have this idea that Tommy is a kid who might understand why Jason wears the mask, and that that is what prompts him to to sort of pull this move. And then the implication, at least, that he he is maybe going to be the next Jason Voorhees or something, because they yes. can't actually be the the final chapter. It's actually it's almost too bad that they didn't. I suppose they capitalized on it a little bit in part six. Uh, yeah, um, right. but it almost it almost would have been more interesting if he had just become another <laughs> another serial killer. Well, I believe oh. like we we'll get into part five soon enough, but I believe that was sort of their original plan was yeah. that Tommy would be the killer in yeah, in no, part sure. five. I like it especially in that it deviates. I mean, I think if you if we if we glean anything from uh, the end of part three, it's that the jump scare is is done. Like they didn't have any other way to. You know, there's there's nothing to add to that moment. Yeah, this you're right. This is the first time we don't have the lulling you into a false sense of security with the lake or the dog or whatever it yeah. may be, and then boom, you know, the slow motion Jason grabbing you or the mom grabbing you or whatever it is. Yeah. They finally eschewed that uh, that technique by the fourth time around. Right. So this is so this is actually aiming instead of for trying to get your popcorn up in the air. This is actually aiming to just be unsettling. Yes. Uh, and that's that's something to be applauded. It's, it's uh, uh, I think it's very effective. Yeah, you're meant to just look into this kid's eyes and be like, oh, shit. You know, yeah. what is he capable of now? It, it is the final chapter and it wants to end with uh, a creepy ellipses. Right. Yeah, I mean, you could interpret this film as how Tommy Jarvis goes insane, you know, and you could look at it as uh, point A to point Z. <laughs> where wherever he started psychologically at the end of the film he's become twisted and and homicidal and i don't think the movie makes a great case for that there aren't a lot of cool signposts along the way that would show a disintegration of his sanity mm-hmm. um it's very abrupt it, it's it, it's sort of a tacked on back door that they might want to go through in the future if they decide to revive the series which of course they did after it made 32 million dollars on a uh 2.6 million budget i like the way that he slides down the machete uh when poor jason gets his face stuck on the machete i mean that is such a gross 
seemingly fatal wound to have your head slide down the blade of a machete as yeah. your yeah. your own body weight takes you down. <laughs> yeah, I, I, and here's the difference between three and four. And three, we have a character read a magazine article about Tom Savini. And four, we have Tom Savini at the height of his yeah. full powers. You know, I, I mean, it's Great an ama- yeah, it's an amazing practical effect and really wins in dosing. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, it, it's supposed to be like, yeah, we definitely have killed this guy. The scene where the the uh, she gets the the machete between his fingers. Yeah, yeah. And holding it up, that's really really well done. Yeah, yeah. The yeah. effects are fantastic in yeah. this. You know, maybe the guy's eyeball kind of popping out when he's getting his head crushed in the in the bathroom is a little bit fakey, but not not bad. Like for the most part, they're very persuasive effects. You know, Jason is breathing very visibly when he's lying on the floor um, in this in, you know, towards the end of the film. And so it's like, okay, so he's alive again here, but I guess he wasn't breathing in the morgue. Uh, like in the Wikipedia page, uh, someone says the attending mortician fails to notice signs that Jason is breathing. How does that happen? Yeah, well, he's too busy eating a sandwich. Well, gentlemen, it's been a pleasure. I will see you next time as we delve into the new beginning. Happy, Friday. Right. Happy Friday the 13th, everybody. Take it easy. Adios. Thanks.